It's usually at this point in the night that we get to open God's Word together. It's one of my favorite points in the week uh, because a lot of my week leads up to this, and I say that in a way of hoping you understand it. what that means is uh, God has worked in my life in the, these passages that I get to, to um, explain and uh, help us all understand, and it's uh, by the power of God's Word that we uh, do anything, and especially as we look to His Word now, uh, we uh, pray and we hope that that would be uh, the case. Uh, tonight, we're going to look at a, uh, a psalm uh, to begin the year. Uh, before we begin, I want to tell you about uh, a, a slogan that I'm sure you've heard before. And it's this, have it your way. Have it your way. Now, much to the chagrin of BK Big Fish lovers everywhere, in 2014, Burger King scrapped its 40-year-old slogan, Have It Your Way, maybe you didn't know this, in favor of the more personal, Be Your Way. Be Your Way. A little bit less iconic, if you ask me. Now, Burger King held that that new motto is intended to remind people, quote, that they can and should live how they want anytime. It's okay to not be perfect. Self-expression is most important, and it's our differences that make us individuals instead of robots, close quote. Now, there are hopefully other things that make us different than robots, but... I agree, that's one of those things. Now, Burger King's senior VP at the time noted in an interview that have it your way, the old slogan, focuses only on the purchase, the ability to customize a burger. By contrast, he said, be your way is about making a connection with a person's greater lifestyle. And that was in 2014. Of course, eight years later, in 2022, marketing perfection, BK has streamlined even more. Now it's just your way. Two words. Your way. Now, classic 40-year-old slogan or modern marketing message, BK's mantra of individualism is the message of Society, in a lot of ways, that you choose how you want to live. You see, we live in a culture that from lettuce and tomatoes to movies and music to right and wrong, our culture screams relativism and individualism and personal choice. We champion you. You having it your way. You today are living out the inevitable and actually fortunate product of this societal shift. Uh, this concept of individual, personal choice. We live at UCLA in a land of opportunity. You don't have to just become a farmer because your dad was a farmer. You can choose what you want to do, even if you're undeclared for a little bit. You've got options, and all of those options give you stock options. For now, before you get there, you've resumed your way all the way to UCLA. And now you choose your major, you choose your club involvement, you go and get it, you create and curate and carve out your own destiny here at UCLA. But don't forget, keep your options open, right? There are so many ways you can go about this you can have it your way. In a world that wavers and bends, and for you, in a season where you choose your own ending, our psalm tonight, Psalm 1, is a clarion call of absolute truth. This psalm is a poignant reminder of the nature of truth itself, of truth that has not changed and will not change, of objective truth from a biblical worldview that while there seem to be so many ways to choose from, 
there are from the perspective of God himself two ways of living and only two ways. Turn, if you haven't already, to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. It's before Psalm 2 in your Bible. Uh, No shame. Use the table of contents if you need to. It's right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 1. Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, the psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Pray with me. Father, we pray that your spirit would work in our lives even tonight to see that there are only two ways of life uh, in this world, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. So uh, illumine our minds and open our hearts to what your word has to say tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. The message of Psalm 1 is a fork in the road. There are two paths and you must choose uh, perhaps tonight in God's kindness in his mercy toward us we could consider Psalm 1 and maybe this sermon as a sign uh, before the fork in the road a warning sign cautioning all who pass by and the message of this psalm is universal it's objective it's absolute and it's warning found within is resolute and it's this each person must earnestly consider these two ways of life the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked as we begin this year of ministry and fellowship at GOC it's fitting to start here in Psalm 1 Because whether this is your first time with us or you've been here since before what seems like this decades-long pandemic, you have a choice as to which way you will choose to follow in this season called college and then in your life as a whole. And so tonight in Psalm 1, we see a picture of the two ways of life, righteous and wicked. A poignant reminder that in God's economy, there are only two ways of living. So first, in verses uh, 1 through 3, we see the prosperity of the righteous. The prosperity of the righteous. The psalmist starts with uh, what is sort of a promising statement. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. This blessedness, or this, if you prefer, blessedness, is a happiness, a joy. Now, it's not a feeling or an emotion sort of happiness, but lasting blessing, a sort of idea of well-being or rightness in one's life, a wholeness or a completeness in life. When I see this word blessed or blessed in the scriptures, I think immediately of an old man on a rocking chair or an old man on a recliner with a grandkid or a great-grandkid on each knee just enjoying life, enjoying the fruit of his labors and the happy and good results of his life's work. Blessedness, well-being, rightness. 
Well, here in Psalm 1, this blessedness doesn't have a minimum age requirement or it's not the result of individual effort and right decision-making, but it is this picture of well-being, of rightness, of happiness. This Psalm 1 blessedness is that of divine blessing. It's a joyous and a full and a blessed life. It's the result of living life God's way. This is a concept familiar to Scripture, even just in the Psalm. Psalm 2, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 32, a familiar one, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Psalm 40, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Psalm 84, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Psalm 119, blessed are those who keep his testimonies. And then elsewhere in scripture, Jeremiah 17, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And then of course, Matthew 5, blessed, 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 the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God and so on and so forth. This is true and lasting joy found in God. Blessing pronounced for those who live life the way that God has set it out to be. That's the kind of blessing we see here in Psalm 1. And in Psalm 1 here, instead of a short, simple phrase like in some of the passages I just read, the psalmist paints a longer, more vivid picture of this blessed man. Just so you know where we're going, verse 1 shows us what this blessed man does not do. And then verse 2 shows us what this blessed man does do. And then verse 3 illustrates the results of this blessed man's life. So look again at verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This man is not influenced by those who are evil. Uh, This blessed man does not keep company with those whose character and habits are markedly sinful. Uh, This blessed man does not associate with those who scoff at God and his ways. Many have taken, many commentators have taken this sort of threefold characterization as a progression of events as if you walk in this way and then you stop and you stand there and you sort of chill a little bit and then I'll just take a seat and I'll sit down and that's cute of a sort of progression but the arrangement of the accents and the words in the original text more simply show there's really just more of an emphasis on the first line. Lines two and three are in reverse order in the original language. Literally, it says, in the path of sinners, he does not stand. In the seat of scoffers, he does not sit. It's got like a Yoda thing going on. And when it does that, it's pointing to what came first. And that's the first line in this text. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. That's really the the main idea being emphasized by lines 2 and 3 in the poem. This blessed man uh, avoids the influence of evil, ungodly people. He, He does not submit to the guidance of the world and is not conformed to it, like Romans 12, 2. Uh, This man is not tossed about by, Ephesians 4 describes it as, every wind and wave of doctrine. This blessed man, this righteous man, does not live in, Ephesians 5, in darkness, but walks in light. His path, his comings and goings, whether it's walking or standing or sitting, are completely different from that of the world. GOC, you will in these next few weeks have moments, particular moments, 
where you will have to make a decision. You will have to decide uh, what kind of company you will keep. You, you will have to decide whether you're going to, to that party or that uh, event or not. And I'm not here to tell you what to do. Uh, but Psalm 1, uh, the voice of God in Psalm 1 is saying that the way of the righteous is one who holds off the influence of the world. The Psalm 1, blessed and righteous man, is, is one who is careful. These next few weeks, you will have a chance, a new person, freshman, uh, transfer, to begin to form the grooves for what kind of people will have an influence on your life. And the warning here in Psalm 1 is that by implication, you must decide wisely. You must be careful about that decision, those decisions that are coming up. And maybe you're here, you're graduating. You've been in our ministry for some time, and you have a job lined up already because you're smart like that. Uh, and you think you're sort of beyond this stage where you have to make these decisions. Well, just wait. Your heart is not immune to this. Just wait till you go to that job at the big firm and everyone's going out and they're asking you, you coming? The way of the righteous is a way of living after the will of God and His Word and it's not just in college, it's beyond. It's for life. It's day by day making decisions to be influenced not by the world conformed, not to the world, but to the will of God found in His word well psalm 1 shows it's not it's not enough just for this righteous man to simply avoid wicked influences psalm 1 also helps us to see that the blessed man must also pursue and seek the counsel of god look at verse 2 but his delight is in the law of the lord and on his law he meditates day and night you see, as opposed to exposing himself to the influence of the ungodly, this righteous man in this passage delights in the law of the Lord. He delights. The word law here isn't law as we know it today in a modern context. This isn't law and order or bar exam, law school kind of, kind of vibe. The word law here literally is Torah. It's the word for God's law. Most normally or most formally, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's the first five books. It's the law, the Torah. These books are filled with God's law. His, the Psalm, Psalms use these words, his precepts or his ordinances or what I like to summarize is his instructions for holy living God's law and this instruction extended to all areas of life turn over really quick to Exodus 19 and we need to see something here uh, to see God's purpose for his law Exodus 19 we're you'll get used to this we're Bible flipping people so you get real good at what you were supposed to get good at in Sunday school growing up Exodus 19, look at verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God is saying in that verse, look how I just delivered you. Look how I just saved you. Now, I've saved you. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my law. Verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God is telling Moses, give them my law. These are my words. And what will happen if you do this and they follow my law? They shall be to me a treasured possession amongst all the peoples. They shall be to me a kingdom of priests a nation that would represent me to other nations. And then they shall be to me, what does it say here, a holy 
nation, a nation that is set apart from the others, a nation that is different from the others. So God's law was given to his people as instructions for living like God's people. From how to worship him to how to handle difficult or awkward situations between one another or uh, simple instruction about what to eat or what to wear. All so that Israel would be set apart as God's people and that they would live this happy, blessed life. And so the psalmist here delights in God's law. He sees it for its incalculable value. He sees that God himself, almighty God himself, has given his word so that his people might know him. And so God's word is the righteous man's delight. It is his joy. This is why the righteous man delights in God's word, because God's word is revelation. It is given to man. It is a window into the character in the deeds of a good and holy God, and it is sufficient for all of life and godliness. When I think of the delight of the righteous man in God's word, I think of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, whole, blessed, happy. And that verse finishes, equipped for every good work. We find delight in God's word because it makes us his blessed people. Now as those living this side of the cross and with God's fully revealed word, not just the first five books, we can extend our view of God's law to his entire word. The Bible is our instruction for holy and happy living, a life led by Him, a life secure in Him, a life satisfied in Him. As God's people, we delight in God's voice heard in His Word. We we find joy in searching the Scriptures. We embrace the righteous law of God and embrace God's righteousness. We are molded and motivated by God's perfect law. We don't see God's commandments as burdensome. Instead, we delight in the law of the Lord. And therefore, we delight in God. Listen to Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Uh, Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And then later in that same psalm, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I just love this humble awareness of the psalmist of the need for the guidance of God's Word. It's my prayer that each one of you tonight would have this same sort of posture. That you wouldn't just avoid the world and shut yourself in, but you would expose yourself uh, to the law of God found in His Word. Uh, that the living and active Word of God, Hebrews 4, would do its work in your life by the Spirit of God. 
back in Psalm 1, look at what this delight looks like. It says there, uh, on his law, verse 2, end of verse 2, on his law, he meditates day and night. This meditation isn't the sort of meditation that might come to mind when you think of that word. This meditation is the idea of memorizing or internalizing, almost this idea of muttering to oneself. And and so this blessed, righteous, happy man is, he looks like he's crazy. He just sort of walks around and mutters to himself the Word of God. He, He talks to himself, but he's rehearsing constantly. There's sort of a totality to this. Uh, when you rise and when you lay your head down and everywhere in between, this uh, man is a walking Bible. I want to tell you about a, a man. His name is Charles Matlock. He's 72. He lives in Savannah, Tennessee. This man is known as the walking Bible of West Tennessee. I don't know about East Tennessee, but West Tennessee. He has memorized most of the Bible. I don't know what that means. It just means more than 50%. And he's memorized entire books at a time. Not just like Jude, like we're talking about Romans and Genesis and stuff like that. All right? Charles Matlock can on command, and with a little bit of think time, recite entire chapters on command. He started this at 12 years old with John 1, 1 through 5. Great place to start if you're now into the Bible memorizing thing as of right now. This man used his unique talent for the glory of God to become a traveling evangelist, and he he began to preach the gospel and praise God for him. He's may be the goat of Bible memory. I mean, this guy is amazing. He's a true Awana hero, this guy. This guy got all the prizes. Matlock is, I guess, proud as you could be about Bible memorization, was not proud about it. He said this, he said, humbly, I want a relationship with Jesus more than just reading and memorizing verses. This is the humble sort of delight, no doubt, in God's Word that we see in Psalm 1. And I do believe memorizing verses and a love for Jesus are inextricably linked. Don't get me wrong. But in Psalm 1, this is the heart, one that sees the integral nature of God and a relationship with Him and His Word, a walking Bible, so to speak. Famous Christian dead guy, Matthew Henry, says it this way, All who are well pleased that there is a God must be well pleased that there is a Bible, a revelation of God, of His will, and of the only way to happiness in Him. Now verse 3 shows us these happy results of life centered on God's Word. Look at verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This righteous man is a tree. He's compared to a tree here. He's planted in an advantageous spot. And so contrary to your favorite Psalm 1 watercolor or painting that might be up in your, your house or in the Sunday school room growing up, pic- picturing a tree with lightly flowing waters uh, next to a perfectly grassy field. These streams are, of water are likely irrigation canals. Uh, the context here is the dry and arid land of Israel where streams of water naturally occurring weren't very common and so streams of water that were irrigation canals were a valuable resource a source of life and success to farmers and trees 
This tree shows all the, good, all the signs of good health. It bears its fruit in season. We've all had fruit in season and out of season. I don't know what your favorite fruit is, but if you had your favorite fruit just a little bit early because you just couldn't wait for it to be in season, that's a disappointing moment. Dry, uh, hard to bite into, not juicy at all. Uh, lots of seeds, guaranteed. This tree is right on time. It, it bears its fruit in season, and it bears good fruit, juicy and sweet fruit. This tree also has a leaf that does not wither. This is a, another sign of good health. The hot, dry winds. It's about to say Santa Ana, but they don't have Santa Ana winds over there, but the, the Israel version of Santa Ana winds come rushing through and dry everything out in its path. But this tree has enough water and nutrients in the soil to be thriving. This tree is in good health because its roots, to follow the analogy, are deeply rooted in these streams of water, this life-giving source of the Word of God. And for a moment, the psalmist steps out of this illustration and gives an assessment of this man as he ends uh, this verse. And he says, in all that he does, he prospers. In all that this blessed man does, he prospers. Now, we know from the entire landscape of the Bible that God's blessing in our lives is not a guarantee in the physical, material sense. His blessing, first and foremost, in our life is the blessing of spiritual life in Him through faith in Jesus Christ. And yet, here, there's no caveat. In all that He does, He, he prospers. And so while we can't expect money to fall from heaven like manna, we can certainly expect God's provision and care for us. We can expect Him to answer our prayers. We can expect the Lord to be on our side. We can expect that God will not let you be tempted beyond what you are able. And so your stonks and crypto may go up or down. Your career may take off or you may get stuck in academia. Lord bless you. But God is faithful. And so those who live by the wisdom of his word will see his faithfulness uh, uh, firsthand time and time again. How is it that this man prospers? He is constantly with the truths of Scripture. He is, his soul is given nourishment and strength. He is supported by God. Uh, he has the clarity and the wisdom of God's Word as His counsel to navigate the storms of life. He seeks to be faithful in everything He sets out to do. This man with the Word of God as a map and God Himself uh, at the helm, this man is a ship staying the course amidst even the strongest of storms. This is where that true joy, that blessed happiness comes. This is the prosperity of the righteous. And this is what Grace on Campus seeks to do. We seek to be a community of believers on this campus devoted to God's Word. And that's why you'll hear the Word of God preached. That's why in small group we study the Word of God together. Uh, that's why when you talk to people here, they, they talk like the Bible talks. When you join us at Grace on Campus, we are about the Word of God because it is the will of God contained in Holy Scripture, revealed to mankind graciously by a good and a holy God. And so consider this first truth, the way of the righteous and 
hold it up as a paradigm, as, as an example for your life, and examine your life against the way of the righteous. We've seen the prosperity of the righteous. Now in verses 4 and 5, we see the peril of the wicked. The peril of the wicked. The psalmist presents here in stark contrast the way of the wicked and its ultimate outcome. Note the briefness here with which the psalmist deals with the way of the wicked. It's, I think, fitting to the brevity of the wicked's existence and their destiny pictured here. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The beautiful, elongated picture of the righteous man being like the tree uh, culminating in verse 3 is very abruptly and very sharply contrasted simply the wicked are not so. It's like, see this beautiful picture, this, this gorgeous painting? That ain't it. It's a blank canvas. Nothing. It's what the psalmist is doing here. It's like showing you the shiny red car on the lot and then taking you to the impound lot. And the psalmist says, well, the wicked are not so. They're not like that. But here's what they are like. The psalmist says they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. The picture here is in the ancient Near East, a threshing floor where you would separate grain from all of the other things. Uh, You have the good grain, the part that you want, and then you have the part that you don't want, the husk or the shell of the grain. Usually separated with what we call a winnowing fork. And the chaff is discarded or burned. You see, the psalmist is saying the wicked are dry. They are useless. They are to be discarded, transient. You see, while the, wicked, while the, while the righteous man is like a vibrant tree planted by streams of water, the wicked are the chaff blown away by the wind. While the righteous man is like the tree which bears its fruit in season, the wicked are unproductive and useless for anything at all. While the righteous man has leaves that do not wither, the wicked wilts away in the arid heat like chaff in a pile awaiting fiery destruction. While the righteous man prospers in all that he does and is blessed of God, the wicked are not so. While the righteous man delights in the counsel and wisdom of God's word, the wicked heed their own advice. The wicked follow the world's wisdom. And as a result, the text says this. Look at verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. You see, the wicked will not stand in final judgment. They will have their day in court and their deeds and the proof of their lives speaks for itself. They rejected God and reject His way and reject His word. And so in judgment, God will reject them. They will not be able to stand fact that sinners could not be in the assembly of the righteous was a familiar concept to the original reader. This idea that those whose lifestyle was regularly sinful was not welcome in the temple was a regular idea for the original reader. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. Uh, that sinners, people who, who love sin and love the ways of the world and are uh, are under the counsel of the wicked should not be in the congregation of the righteous. And in eternity, in the ultimate assembly of the righteous, there can be no impurity. Psalm 75 tells of a future time in which all men, all nations will be judged. Flip over there. Psalm 
75. I think it's helpful to see with your own eyes. Psalm 75, just a few verses here. Psalm 75, starting in verse 2. It's God speaking. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady at its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Turn to Matthew 3. We need to see another passage that shows us this kind of judgment. Matthew 3, it's uh, the era of the ministry of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is speaking of Jesus, the one coming after him, whose sandal he was not worthy to tie. And he speaks of Jesus, and he tells of the judgment that Jesus will bring on that last day. Look at Matthew 3, verse 11, and this is John describing his own ministry compared to the ministry of Jesus. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Later in Matthew, Matthew 25, it gives us the picture of the Son of Man separating the sheep from the goats. See, in final judgment, the wicked, as Psalm 1 says, will not stand in the judgment. Jesus, with his winnowing fork, will separate the good grain from the chaff. And the chaff, in Matthew 3, will be burned with unquenchable fire. It's a heavy picture. And so this text... It calls for our examination. I want to ask you tonight, are, are you walking the way of the wicked tonight? Uh, maybe it's not what you're doing, but maybe what's in your heart. You're, you're kind of open to exploring what's out there these next few weeks. Uh, this text calls for our examination. Do you, do you see the, the path and the prosperity of the righteous and the people around you and you see that you are... Not so. You're not like godly people. You're not like people in the church. Maybe you appear to have good fruits. You fit right in. You look like good grain. But as you sit there tonight, you know that you don't have good fruit. That Maybe you don't know Jesus in a saving way. And Psalm 1 is telling you, you will not stand in the judgment. It's not for me to decide. It's for, for God to, to show. You will be exposed on that last day. And this passage tonight is beckoning you to turn to God. Uh, to find life in Jesus. See, the very one who will hold the winnowing fork, who will separate the sheep from the goats on that last day, is the same Jesus who came to the earth as a man and lived a perfect life and yet died a sinner's death in our place so that we might have his righteousness and that he would take our unrighteousness on his shoulders on that cross. And then when he was raised three days later by the power of God himself, we, in that raising of Jesus, would have also life in him, new life in him, a chance to pursue the way of the righteous. And so this same Jesus that will, will use the winnowing fork, so to speak, on that last day is the same Jesus in whom we have hope. 
It's in Christ alone that we have that kind of hope as Christians. And I offer that to you even tonight. So don't leave tonight if you're not sure about the status of your soul. I know you're here tonight to be at a Christian group, and I appreciate that, but that doesn't mean that everyone here knows the Savior. Instead, I would urge you to talk to somebody, talk to me after, if you have questions about the gospel, about the good news of Jesus. Let's finish our text here against this kind of precipice, this dark backdrop. There is a diamond of good news in Psalm 1. Verse 6 shows us the overarching truth that ties everything together. We've seen the prosperity of the righteous and the peril of the wicked, and now we see in verse 6, very briefly, the perspective of God, the perspective of God. The psalmist leaves us a summary statement to sort of cap off the psalm. Uh, But this verse is more than just a simple way of wrapping up the contents of the psalm. It's actually the key to unlocking this psalm. You see, as much as this text is about the choice you make at the fork in the road, verse 6 inserts a dose of biblical reality. And it's this. It is the Lord. It is God who determines these matters. You see, while the righteous faithfully pursue God and His Word and the wicked walk their own way, the Lord reigns over all and consigns each path to its end. The psalmist, in a sense, flips the reader's perspective on its head, revealing explicitly and pointedly the undergirding truth of the psalm. Look at verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, this psalm is not just about doing more good, or not doing bad stuff, or it's not just about being more plugged in here, or not going to parties. It's not even just about cleaning up your act, or not just about reading your Bible more on its own. This psalm is about knowing and being known by God. There are indeed only two ways of living in this life. And the psalmist even reinforces that fact here in verse 6. But the reason why there are only two ways, the basis upon which these two ways are established, the very standard by which these two ways of life are judged is God Himself. These two ways are no man-made set of rules or arbitrary collection of morals. The delineation of these two ways is the result of God's own character. His holiness, His goodness, His kindness, His mercy, His greatness, His glory. You see, the way of the righteous is the way of God Himself. And it's communicated to us through His Word. That's why we delight in it. And the way of the wicked, by contrast, is all that is against God and His Word. It is because the Lord knows the way of the righteous that they prosper. It is because the Lord knows the way of the righteous, that they bear fruit. And it is because the Lord knows the way of the righteous that they find delight in His Word. The word knows here in verse 6, for the Lord knows, is a relational kind of knowing. It's not that you know of someone. You know Gene Block. You know of him. Instead, it is knowing someone personally, intimately, closely, or even comprehensively, you could say. You see, if you walk the way of the righteous, God knows you. And if God knows you, and therefore you know God, there is comfort in this, 
There is a resting confidence that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. There is a comfort that God who will bring all things to work together for the good of those who love him. There is a comfort in knowing that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. God in his goodness and his grace sent his son Jesus. And it is by faith in Jesus alone that we can begin to walk the way of the righteous. And yet against that backdrop, again, a very predictable, stark, yet devastating contrast. The way of the wicked will perish. You see, the Lord does not know the way of the wicked. And so there can be no confidence. There is no comfort. There is no security. There is no forgiveness of sins with the way of the wicked. That is the peril of the wicked from the perspective of God. Uh, The message tonight is crystal clear. There are only two ways of life. The way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Which path are you walking? Which path are you walking? That is the basic question facing all of us. My hope is that tonight you are challenged by this psalm uh, to consider your course. And my prayer is that you, each one of you, would pursue the way of the righteous. It's been said that education is the great equalizer. That education is something that levels the playing field. And in particular, a college education. That to be at a university like this one and receiving an education equalizes differing circumstances in life. In part, that's why you're all here. You've made it to the level playing field. Well, as you begin this school year, I want you to just pause thinking about this text tonight, and maybe this is later tonight, and just think about this text, the great equalizer in Psalm 1 is the perspective of God, that God knows the way of the righteous, and God does not know the way of the wicked. God will righteously judge every individual who walks the way of the wicked. Yet that God, that very same God, has graciously given us His Son, Jesus. Those who choose to walk the way of the righteous, uh, by His righteousness, uh, Jesus' own righteousness, will live. And those who oppose Him and walk the way of the wicked will perish. Friends, if you don't know him, choose the way of the righteous. Run to him and he will know you. And friends, if you already do know him, continue in the way of the righteous and cling to Christ whose righteousness is now our own. This is Psalm 1, the fact that there are only two ways before a holy, a sovereign, and a good God.